Tonight's reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Therefore, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fulfill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Well, special welcome again to uh, Bill's family and friends that are here tonight. We're honored that you are here. Uh, We will have a memorial service for Bill tomorrow uh, night at 6 o'clock in this room, so there will be a lot more opportunity to celebrate his life and remember the hope we have in Christ and share more stories. But tonight we're going to continue on with our, uh, our series on the Ascension Gifts, and we're about done, just a couple more. And I've been starting by asking you to do a little experiment, just what would it mean to be an urban monastery? And we've had a little definition of an urban monastery, if we could put it up there. Um, An urban monastery seeks the peace of the city by offering a school for the Lord's service and extending hospitality to guests. And uh, I'm not necessarily saying, hey, let's all actually become monks and, and all of that stuff. I'm just saying this is a model of a Christian community that God has used throughout history to serve and bless cities, and what can we learn from it? And I've tried to give you a little illustration. Tonight, a quick one from a, a famous urban monastic, if we could put the next slide up, Mother Teresa. In 1950, she started the Missionaries of Charity in Calcutta. She formed it with 12 uh, women, and uh, they began uh, starting off with prayer in the morning, then mass, then breakfast, then they would go out for five hours, and they would care for the most vulnerable in the streets of Calcutta. 
They'd come back for prayer. Uh, they would rest. They would have spiritual direction. They'd go back out until 6. They would come in, eat. They would have prayer. And they would uh, all gather at 9 for a blessing from uh, Mother Teresa. Uh, and it's just another example how people have come together around the rhythms of prayer and solitude, worship, the scriptures, to encourage one another as they care for those around them. And so we've been asking the question, uh, first we ask, well, what does hospitality look like? And we spent some time over the summer talking about that. And then we've been talking recently about what it would mean to be a school for the Lord's service. What would it mean uh, for us to be equipped to grow up in Christ to grow up and become everything that we want to become in him. And we've been specifically focusing on verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And this is kind of a new verse for a lot of us. Uh, Most of us haven't really, uh, at least I don't have a lot of experience in any kind of a, a faith community where these five kinds of people were actively equipping the body of Christ. And so we've said, what might that look like? And tonight we're we're looking at the third kind of gifted person that equips the body, the evangelist. Uh, You only see the word evangelist twice in the New Testament. You read about Philip the evangelist in Acts 21, and Paul tells Timothy, do the work of the evangelist in 2 Timothy. But the word is actually used 54 times in the New Testament. It's translated many different ways. Here's a couple of examples. Uh, And it just means someone who brings the good news of the gospel to people. That's really all it means. Uh, Revelation 10.7 is described as proclaiming the mystery of God. Revelation 14, preaching the glad tidings of the good news. Luke 4.18, preaching good news to the poor. Luke 4, 43, preaching the kingdom of God. Luke 2, verse 10, an angel bringing good news. So that word, that Greek word, just means good news, and to evangelize is to share the good news. That's really all that it means. Now, what is the good news? Let's just step back and and think about that for for just a moment. And what is this that we're supposed to be sharing you know, as I was preparing this today, um, it, I prepared it before and after having the honor of going down to the funeral home and being with Bill's lovely family and friends and uh, preparing for his service tomorrow night. And, and as I was reflecting on the day, it just occurred to me that what has happened in Bill's life is the good news. That's the good news. You'll hear more stories if you want to tomorrow night. I just had uh, uh, a couple of years to get to know Bill. And the first time I met, it was, it was a very different meeting. <laughs> uh, the first thing he says is, I know I'm odd. Uh, he says, I have trouble connecting with people. He says, and I really don't understand the love of God. He says, I know how to teach God's word, but sometimes I push people away with it. I'm divorced, he says. I love my former wife and my son. I feel terrible about it. I'm a, I'm a potter, I'm an artist, but I lost my driver's license and I can't get to my studio. And that was our first conversation. And so as we've heard, Bill just kept showing up and 
this change started to happen in, in, in Bill. And then a couple of years ago, he got really sick. And I remember Sandy and I dropped by to visit him. And he was in that forest of IVs and all this stuff. And he said, uh, I just don't want to die alone. I do not want to die alone. And uh, brothers and sisters, he did not die alone. <laughs> he did not die alone. Uh, a dear friend here, I think Conrad Loy is here tonight, uh, took him to Nashville while he had treatments for weeks and just lived with him there. He reconnected with his sister, his son, his former wife, deeply connected with, with a number of us. Somehow he got his driver license back. Folks drove him every week to get treatment. Uh, he started going to the studio again. He kind of found his calling again. And, and when I heard that he uh, had become very sick, I called him Tuesday. I was thinking, I, you know, where, what room are you in? I'll come over, you know, let's, let, let's pray, let's have communion. He said, can't. I said, what do you mean you can't? I mean, you know, usually when somebody's dying and you call them, they, they, he said, I'm too busy. I said, well, what do you mean you're too busy? He says, I'm in the studio. I've got to, I, I'm not sure. I think he said, I'm working on my urn because <laughs> he wanted to be buried in his... Like, well, okay, Bill. You know, call me when you're done. <laughs> you know, and he he acted as if he were preparing for a great vacation. He really did, and he was. And so uh, Ginger called and told me what, what happened so powerfully on on a Monday night, and, and I called Bill. I said, Bill would you share the offering Sunday night about what's going on? And he said, oh, yes, and I, I think we have this, if you can put it up. He was very excited about it. He put this on his Facebook page. For those who have been following my fight with cancer, I'll be giving a short testimony Sunday evening. It will be at All Souls Church starting at 5. So uh, he was very excited about, about doing that. And I remember talking with him on the phone about what he wanted to share. And he said, you, you know, I used to just want to get up and teach. He said, but what I want to do Sunday night, I want to talk about how I found out about the love of God. And how I've come to know him through his people. And, uh, Bill's at another worship service tonight, so... We were stuck with Mark, but it did work. <laughs> and I really think that's, that's the good news. You know, what we're saying is, to anyone who wants to listen, you are deeply loved. Regardless of anything you've done. You are utterly forgiven regardless of whatever shame that you have. You're not alone. You know, I think that's part of the gospel, too. This is why I just don't buy that. I go to church on my phone and I listen to it on the podcast. That ain't church, brothers and sisters. You're not saved into a podcast. You're saved into the people of God. Bill had a family, and he had a much bigger family when he came came here. That's part of the good news. You're never alone. You're part of a greater story. 
It was so beautiful to see Bill pick back up the pottery again. Somehow he got his car back and his license back. And I don't know if any of that was legal. Don't want to know. You know, <laughs> it was legal. Okay, <laughs> fine. You know, but he began to kind of find his place in the kingdom again and use his gifts. That's that's the gospel. You never need to be afraid again. You know that that was just was so touching about Bill, the way he faced his own death, even Friday. He had hope and joy and peace. And you can't fake it when they've given you five days to live. Sorry, you just can't. You can fake a lot of things. I could fake a lot of things, right? You can't fake it. Bill wasn't faking it. And then the last thing that I think about when I think about the gospel is it means death is not the end. You know, today I, I had the opportunity in the little funeral home to go say goodbye to him. Went back there and you know was with him for a moment and he wasn't there. I'm always struck by that whenever you're with the body of a human being that's passed. They're not there. And it was so evident to me that Bill was home, that that's, that life was gone to another plane, another dimension. That's the good news, too. So Jesus tells us to, to share that with people. And, and just as a reminder, um, a couple places we read this. Matthew 28, the last, the last thing he says to his disciples, 18 to 20. Jesus came, he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then in Acts 1.8, we read something a little bit similar. And Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. And then in Acts 8, when the church scatters, this is what we read. This is not just about the apostles. Uh, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And that Greek, that's the same Greek word for evangelism. So don't think, Billy Graham, think. They just went around talking about, about their faith. They, they witnessed. So one of the things every Christian is supposed to do is evangelize, share their faith, witness, testify, proclaim, whatever we want to say about it. And I... I think for a variety of reasons we've become ashamed of doing that. I don't like to evaluate us numerically. I don't think that's healthy. But I do notice that over the past several years on our birthday party we have a baptism. And in the beginning, you know, we had five, six, seven, eight people every year being baptized and those are the most powerful sermons that are ever preached at All Souls. They're wonderful. People give their testimonies. Last year, I don't believe we had, or maybe we had one. This year, we have one wonderful person getting baptized. 
and it, it, it just, I'm just aware of the fact, I'm just noticing the fact that, that we don't seem to be sharing our faith in a way where other people are responding and coming into the family of God. I'm, just, I'm not trying to shame us, I'm just observing that. I think part of it is, I have more of a pastoral teaching gifting. I'm not a strong evangelist. And I think one of the reasons why we need to listen to this text is it says that there's all five of these gifts that need to be active in the body for it to be balanced. And one of those gifts needs to be somebody who's passionate about and gifted in evangelism. And, and they need to be, be constantly reminding us of the need to share our faith. And by the way, we are doing baptisms again at our birthday party October 7th. If that's something God's calling you to do, it's really important. Jesus says, go and baptize. It's part of the whole package of salvation. Why? Because standing up in front of others in water before the spirit world and the physical world is a very powerful way to solidify your commitment. And if you need to be baptized, you need to talk to me. Okay, and we'll get together. Now, I want to think for a moment about what the role of evangelism or the evangelist might look like in our body. And, uh, and I think there's a difference between somebody who has a gift of evangelism, somebody who just supernaturally has the capacity to, to share the gospel, and an evangelist, I think, is a, a, somebody who for years has been walking in that gift, and now they're helping us figure out how to carry out the gospel how to equip us. Now, I think we need to acknowledge that the gift of evangelism functions differently in Christendom than it does in a post-Christendom mission field. Let me just explain what I mean by that. In Christendom, I mean a culture that sees itself as Christian and shares a Christian worldview. And uh, much of the West uh, has lived under Christendom since the conversion of Constantine. It lasted in America through about the middle of the 20th century and longer in the South. Um, and under Christendom, everyone is generally held to a Christian worldview. And so you could talk about God and sin and salvation and heaven and hell, and people at least knew what you were talking about. The assumption was that you had a general sense that, yes, there was a God, yes, you were a sinner, yes, you needed a Savior, and that maybe you ought to get to that someday. The, uh, the symbol of the evangelist under Christendom, um, we're going to get to that in a minute. Do we? It's okay, we may, I may have not. Yeah, that's uh, Billy Graham, and uh, he did that all over the world. Sandy and I got to go to a crusade in uh, 1984. Unbelievably uh, powerful. I don't know where that is, but he did that all over the world. Um, but there, you don't have Billy Graham today. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why is that we now live in a post-Christendom, secular, pluralistic society where there are many different spiritualities and philosophies and no one religion or philosophy is given a privileged place in the public square. And so today, we don't have a shared vocabulary about God or sin, or salvation. I remember thinking when I was in seminary, you know, everybody is walking around with a hole in their soul, they're wrestling with their guilt, they're, they're, they're weighed down by the burden of their sin, they know they need forgiveness, and if you could just introduce them to Jesus, they'll immediately pop because they're just waiting. 
I, I don't find that to be true with a lot of people. The whole idea of sin isn't even there anymore in our, in our culture. Um, a couple other factors that I think have changed the face of evangelism today, real briefly. One is relativism, this idea that all belief systems are equally valid, and so it's, it's then rude to try to uh, invite someone to change their belief system. Uh, colonialism, that's a whole other uh, sermon series, but um, so-called Christian nations in the West went all over the world taking land and treasure from other human beings and oppressing them and putting them into slavery. And uh, a lot of times that was done in the name of the gospel. And then evangelicalism, which now has become a, 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 a political movement. And so now when you talk about evangelism, people think you're talking about a, per, a political situation. So there's all sorts of reasons why we're maybe not that excited about sharing our faith and maybe why there's some some shame around it. So what does the gift of evangelism look like in our context today? Um, I I would submit that we don't really know that new models are emerging and we're just, just now trying to kind of figure out what those new models are. Um, I've tried to come up with a little definition that's pretty clunky, but it's the best I can come up with. Here, here is how I understand an evangelist in a secular postmodern culture. An evangelist creates hospitable spaces where a friend can, over time, explore their personal religious assumptions while also exploring and hopefully embracing the alternative vision of Jesus. An evangelist creates hospitable spaces where a friend can, over time, explore their personal religious assumptions while also exploring and hopefully embracing the alternative vision of Jesus. What what I'm suggesting is that evangelism in a postmodern secular culture is highly relational and very long-term, and it's creating places where our friends and neighbors can have honest conversations about their own belief systems and trust you enough to hear about the the Christian faith. Now, what are possible examples of that? Well, um, I think Leslie Newbegin, a missionary to India, started to point point us here. He may be one of the most important Christian thinkers of the 20th century, He was a missionary from Britain and India in the 1940s. He served several terms over there. And, of course, at that time, India was very pluralistic. Many different, there was was a Muslim, and there was Hindu, there was some Buddhist. And he came back to Britain, and he found the churches shrinking, and everybody wondering why, when they rang the bell, people didn't just show up. And Newbegin started to write some books where he said, look, the West is now becoming like the rest of the world, it's becoming pluralistic, polytheistic. It's more like being in a, a Muslim culture than being in a Christian culture. And we need to entirely rethink the way that we do evangelism. You need to think about it more like a missionary in, a, in another country. And that started an enormous conversation in the West uh, that has led to kind of a reframing a definition of evangelism. Now, I think one of the best examples I've ever seen of, uh, of this approach to evangelism is a place called Labrie, and uh, it was started in the late 60s, early 70s by 
an evangelist named Francis Schaeffer, and it was a time where people were really starting to reevaluate their faith. And so he went into Switzerland. He found a little uh, house up in the mountains and uh, essentially invited anybody that wanted to to come in and live there for as long as they wanted to and study. He was a great scholar, and they would, uh, they would just go and, and sit under teaching and sit around and talk and wrestle with things. Sometimes people would stay nine months, 12 months. It was a powerful way, particularly in that crazy time of the 70s, where people could go and explore, others, explore their belief system. Now, here's another example that I think might fit this definition. Deb Scaproth, an English teacher, English professor in our church, she wrote this week, and she said, you know, there's this great documentary on Flannery O'Connor. And, uh, of course, she was a, a Southern writer who wrote from a Christian perspective. And uh, do you think we could book the square room, and I know the guy who put the documentary together, and could, could we hold a, a kind of a, a, an evening where people learn about Flannery O'Connor and her writings and interview the, the, the director and talk about faith? I think that's a very creative, wonderfully winsome way to create a space for, for the gospel. Uh, Stephen Otis, some of you know Stephen. Um, he has an idea of a, what he calls a, a, a Christian uh, sacred reading room. And it comes out of this whole vision. And he envisions a space in, in the city that is uh, filled with uh, books and quietness and uh, it's devoted to what he's, four things, study, prayer, hospitality, and spiritual direction. That it would be just a place where you could go, where you could read, where you could meet with somebody to talk about your faith, uh, or, or you could go through little different studies and things like that over a long period of time and make your way to faith. And then the other one that I would, that I would think of is um, something I seem to be spinning myself doing a lot more of, it's talking to Christians who have lost their faith. Um, they're, they're deep into the deconstruction work. And uh, I find myself having long conversations about how, uh, how you might put, put the faith back together again. I think that may be what evangelism looks like in a postmodern culture. Um, we're going to interview two lovely, wonderful evangelists here in a minute. I'll end with this story. I've told it to you before, but it, I think it illustrates what I'm talking about. This is many years ago now, but a man named Robert Lost lived uh, uh, over uh, across from the Daylight Building. And uh, he was not a believer. He, he was uh, an atheist at the time. And he came to me one day, and he said that he had been reading a novel, looking out his window, and came to believe that there was a God. And he asked me if this building and this church were a monastery, and could I help him know God? And we began to meet. We met um, for many months, studying scripture, reading books. Uh, Robert eventually became Catholic, went through their whole uh, joining process, uh, became a follower of Christ, reading uh, Thomas Merton's book, Seven Story Mountain, and then sadly died of a, of a heart attack, and is actually buried at the monastery that I go to every, uh, uh, every year after Lent. I think that may be a picture of kind of slow church evangelism, that it just takes time. 
um, to work it out. Well, Taryn, would, would you all come up and um, Janae and Nora and um, tell us a little bit about what this looks like for you. Do you need this, Taryn? Okay. Uh, great. So, uh, Uh, so yeah, so Doug was talking about this being about you know creating hospitable spaces where friends can experience uh, encounter Jesus, and uh, you know in a lot of ways I'd say this is this is an advancing function you know that, that helps the body move forward in our mission. Um, it's it's not just uh, you know good at talking to people about Jesus, but but about how to bring how to bring people into the work of God, um, and. Uh, yeah, so this this is aiding in the missions of the saints, and something we mentioned a couple of times before, right? This is sequential in nature, not just hier- not not hierarchical. We tend to think about stuff like we've got this guy, then this guy, then this guy, and then everybody else is down here. This is we're talking about these gifts as ones that come alongside the body in sequence, right? So we talked about the apostles coming in and and convening and creating culture, laying foundations of what the kingdom looks like. The prophet coming in, helping us stay aligned with God's will, His ways, His timing, His heart. Um, and the, the evangelist helping us to advance. You know, these are people that, that feel that, that pull of, like, we've got to take the hill. People are, people are dying. If we're not actually helping the gospel uh, be contextualized to where, to where they are or helping people to, in the context, encounter the gospel. So um, we uh, usually, you know, we're trying to go about this by help demystify things a little bit, giving some examples uh, every week, usually we're trying to go about it in a way that says, hey, here's, here's an example of somebody who's an equipper and somebody that's been equipped uh, uh, and what that can look like. But we're going to do a little different tonight, and we're going to do someone who's been walking in this for, for a little while with Janae and then someone who's just started to discover what that looks like for them to be, be one of these. So in case there's anyone who's been going through this series going like, maybe this might be me, maybe one of these might be me, kind of hear about a little about Nora's experience there. So... Um, and by the way, for those of you that don't know Janae, she is Chantel's twin sister. So don't be confused. Chantel was up here a couple weeks ago. They're both individually unique and wonderful ladies. Um, but uh, so Janae, uh, as somebody who helps the body be equipped to advance into a context and create spaces to encounter Jesus, can you give a couple of examples of, of what that's, that's looked like for you? Blessings to each of you all. So I actually lived in Honduras as a missionary for over three years. And what I did for a long time there was work with the young people. And so um, I worked with a lot of leaders at different churches and also at the orphanage that I worked at um, just to strategize about what it looked like for them to reach the young people in our neighborhood. And so for me, um, a big part of it has just been praying and seeking God and asking him for his heart for the group of people that he wants to reach and spending time with that group of people and understanding um, how they think, how they live, where they are, and then wanting to relate to them and then help other people understand that so that they can reach that group of people. And I guess another example would be um, when I was at school at MTSU, I'm an artist and have a huge heart for artists. So just working with um, the ministry that I served with to reach the artists and understand the artists. Um, so yeah, so it's a lot of contextualization, like being in one place and another, working with mission, saying how do we actually communicate well in this in this area and connect with people. So, uh, so Nora, uh, as somebody who's just discovering yourself in this role um, over the last year or so, what's it been like to start to see this as a part of how the Lord's wired you? 
um, to hear you say strategies, hilarious. I didn't know you had strategies for this. Um, I don't have strategies. I, um, ever since I was little bitty, I was the girl at preschool who would gather all the kids at preschool and bring them to my grandmother's house. Um, because God is good, and he lets me find these wonderful things. And I know down to my toes, they're good, they're solid, they're real, and I just want everyone to come. Um, so Gran had butter noodles and... Um, those like uh, big wheelers. And I knew that was good. And so people needed to be there. And so now as a grown up, there's sort of this insatiable thing in me that's kind of annoying sometimes where I just, it's mostly moms right now. If you're moms, I'm sorry. But it's like, I can't stay away from you um, because I know something that's good. And I want you to come. And I don't know what's going to happen to you when you get there. And I don't know. I'm definitely usually not the teacher. Um, but, like, I accost moms in parking lots, and I stock them in the grocery stores. And, um, and there's kind of a fearlessness that I have seen where I'm, I have quite a bit of fear in other areas of my life. But in this, I don't because it's, it's, it's my heart is it's so them. It's about them. It's not about me. And so it's easy to look like an idiot and chase a mom down the cereal aisle because I'm like, I know something good. <laughs> and so I haven't matured to this level. And so I haven't really taken it to the Jesus level. I just invite them to things that have love. So the hospitable love spaces. So um, so I'm excited to see. I didn't know it was a thing. So it's apparently a thing. <laughs> Taryn told me I was an evangelist. And I was like, what? So, um, yeah, it's the, it's the like come and taste and see. And I can't handle the thought of you not getting to, getting to taste. Like, it makes me crazy. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate you being willing to come up. and. So some of you that might be intimidating and be like, oh, my gosh, I've got to go run people down. No, that's not what we're saying. Um, you know, again, that, but if you've got something that's going like, yeah, I've got that same kind of heartbeat of, like, I can't help but see the body go. I can't help but say, you're there and you need to be part of what the work of God is going on here. You need, you need that in your context. Um, you might be stern in that. The Lord might, might have that in you. If you. And if that's something that's stern, come talk to me or come talk to one of these wonderful ladies. Um, I'll be over here for a few minutes after the service, by the way. Um, but, uh, but either way, uh, if that's not you that's one of those, you need people like this to, in your life to say, okay, well, how do I encounter uh, bring, bring the gospel into the context of what I'm doing because I may not know how. And a lot of us don't, and that's why we need them. So, And people like them. Anyway.